Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO Podcast. If you're a chief executive, or if you think like one, and you want to create exponentially greater impact, then this show is for you. My name is Richard Metcalf, founder of X-Quadrant. I coach some of the most successful and impressive CEOs and executive teams on the planet and help them achieve extraordinary results. And no matter how successful you've been in the past, there's always a whole new level of impact available to you. So if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. In this episode, we continue our season on secrets of scaling, and I talk with Jonathan Satchel, who is the CEO of Learning Technologies Group. Jonathan has um, taken, grown this business from really very small beginnings to an incredible force in the learning, in the corporate learning technology space. When he started, the company had 8 million turnover. It's now at 190. When he started, he had 100 employees. Now he has over 1,000. And along the way, he's made over 17 acquisitions and mergers. And he's really refined an acquisition formula, uh, which has created an incredible resilience in the business. And so we dig into that today. We look at uh, what he's learned along the way, what he would have done differently, And also, what is that key acquisition engine and why does it work so well when other companies get this so wrong? Incredibly interesting story. Jonathan's a fascinating person. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Jonathan. Good afternoon, Richard. Hey, thank you so much for joining. I'm looking forward to diving in with you today. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm waiting for the interrogation with interest. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to, the bright lights are coming up. I'm going to become a shadowy figure and uh, just grill you. Yeah, so we're going to explore secrets of scaling, right? You're the chief executive of Learning Technologies Group, and you know you hit the Financial Times Top 1000 European Growth Companies list, which is kind of where I discovered you and started to learn a bit more. And so it sounds like you've really had a, an interesting journey over the last few years, I think, since 2013 at least. And so let's dive in into that into the discussion and find out kind of what those, what the highs and lows have been and, and what your secrets of success have been uh, in that period. But first, why don't you give us a quick elevator pitch of kind of like, um, you know, who you are and, you know, how did you kind of get into this learning, learning space? Completely by accident. In fact, I, I started life as a computer salesman, uh, learnt learned a lot about that. And I would thoroughly recommend for any budding entrepreneur that uh, a sales journey is never a bad place to start actually dealing with customers, persuading them to buy something. Those are skills that will last you in good stead throughout your business career. Um, and then I fell by accident into a video training situation in the early 90s. That caused me then to acquire a video training business in the late 90s. And that turned into an e-learning business. I mean, that's the very quick mm. version. Um, my chairman and I then bought what we thought was uh, we'd respect it as the market leader in e-learning in the UK um, for a long time, a business called Epic and Bryson in 2008. Um, and it needed a bit of a turnaround. So I learned a lot of skills there in terms of fixing problems, focusing on financials, margins, etc. cetera. Um, and we got to know the industry very well and decided that there was a real opportunity. It was quite a fragmented sort of cottage 
style industry mm. and we felt there was a real opportunity for consolidation and so then there was the simple decision if we we're going to do that as to how we we're going to finance it whether that was private equity or, or, or public markets we took we chose the latter and we reversed into a cash shell in november 2013 so that's basically how i got to the beginning of the ltg journey if you like right so that was uh yeah that very positive history thank you for that so just to dive in second on the whole question of turnaround because obviously those are skills which come into play in various circumstances right in any business sure. in a sense but obviously much more when you come in for the first time and you have to do some things in pretty short order um you know what are your thoughts looking back on that actually of uh because obviously it was a success or you, you managed to turn it around to set it up for, for a firm foundation um just tell me a bit about that journey was i mean that's could be quite intimidating when you first turn up on day one of a business that needs absolutely stickling. Um, but but if you go in with your eyes open, that that makes it a lot easier. I think the first thing one, one should always do is um, be aware of two things. One, of course, remind yourself that um, providing you're doing doing things well researched and making good quality decisions, you're improving a situation from where it was. Because mm. um, sometimes those decisions feel really gnarly and grunchy and rather painful for people, but you're actually looking towards the sunlit uplands. And the second thing, which is a big byproduct of that, is that whilst, okay, you could argue that perhaps the prior leadership team, uh, whether some of them are still there or not, um, could be could be held responsible for the business's demise in, in, in the previous period. Um, I think one doesn't focus on that, but the thing one needs to focus on is that you're trying to take your team of people, the, the staff, mm. on a journey to the sunlit uplands. Yes. And therefore, it's got to be very much about it wasn't your responsibility and you've got to emphasize to them that the change that you're making now is, is always all about forward looking and not about yeah. backwards looking. Um, and so providing you can pitch those messages right, I think that's half the, half the battle, quite mm. frankly. Um, and frankly, I, I, I would be really clear that I think from my perspective, I'm, I'm pretty self-aware of my capabilities and my weaknesses, and I'm not an inventor. I'm not a, a, you know, somebody mm. who, who can create something from scratch, think of a wonderful new product or service. Mm. Um, I'm a refiner, and I, I really love getting my teeth into some good work that someone else has done in mm. terms of creating something and then looking for the angles, seeing where it could be better. And it's a, it's a, it, it, coming in on that second phase is, yeah. is, is really interesting because someone's done some great body of work at the beginning, but you, you need that alternative perspective to take it normally to that next level. Yeah, I love the that point you're saying about the team that it's like, yeah, well, we are where we are for various reasons, right? Perhaps whatever the journey was. Uh, but now there's a new future. I mean, there's things that are different in the world, things are different with us. Here's the opportunity. And I think, I, and I find when I'm working, for example, with, uh, with a team, you know, one of the first tasks is really to get the team excited about what journey do we want to go on together? Quite. Right. And, and that works whether it's an executive team or whether it's a, an organization or a company. But there has to be that sense of, oh, yeah, this is an exciting journey. You just said you described it as a sunlit uplands or whatever. Um, but, you know, I call it a, a, you know, a vivid vision, for example, right? You know, or a heroic vision. It's like, what's something which is actually inspiring to me that actually I want to be there and I'm ready to, to go on that journey? And I think you're right. That's a really critical, um, you know, you're winning hearts and minds at that point, right? Because you're offering them something which is attractive especially if you can manage to and it, it, there's some nuance here of course you know sometimes you have to justify why something needs to change from the past to the future and why there's going to yeah, be something cool. found that, that's different mm. um but you, you need to just uh, 
couch that in terms that don't say it's your fault it was like this and we're going to change it to that mm. um and i've found I, I and by the way you know i've learned this from some some uh, ill-founded mistakes so um you know i speak with uh, with, with good knowledge of, of the, the way to do this right now um but yeah you can really you can really inspire people to come on that journey if they think we're, we're changing for the following reasons uh, yeah it wasn't my fault before yeah so you um so you 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 bought out this business. You then reversed it into this um, this cash shell, and then you started to acquire and grow and and and, and consolidate a whole number of learning businesses. Yeah. So just tell us about that. Like, where did you start? And just to get a sense of reference, where are you now? You know, sure. um, how many so, years later? Eight years later. So uh, we've done sixteen acquisitions. That's the first mm-hmm. reference point. But um, to give some context, we we are focused on the the, the development of talent in the workplace, so corporate learning. Um, and we started. There, there, I'd say there are three segments to that industry. Very quickly, just to, to mm-hmm. provide a frame of reference, that's customized content, bespoke learning programs for large companies and government, large corporates, um, where they have a large learning audience. There's generic content, uh, which is akin to a published book. You know, how to use Microsoft Excel, how to manage a meeting. This sort mm-hmm. of stuff that that we all need to know that we don't need to be customized specifically to us. And then finally, um, content is nothing if you don't have the actual platform to be able to distribute it, curate it, collate it, and monitor its usage and, and track it's been mm. uh, used effectively and know where people are competent and where they aren't. So the platforms are actually the lifeblood of the entire sort of learning ecosystem in a business, if you like. We're focused on custom content and the platforms. And that's not by accident. We're concerned about the published content industry. We think there are quite a few um, perils to that business model at the moment in terms of free-to-air content on YouTube and, and, and just the general way that content is being consumed and distributed in much smaller chunks. So we decided to stay away from that segment of the industry. We started life very much in our own mold. So we were a custom content company. We bought three businesses across 2014 and 15 that did the same sorts of things, but in specialist areas. Um, that went well. Um, but do bear in mind, at the same time, we were I was going through a massive learning curve uh, as a CEO of a public company. And we were we were beginning to hear and learn what investors were looking for. And one of the, the, the challenges that I, I noted that we had was we were a pure project revenue based business. So we mm-hmm. won one project, delivered it, went on to the next. Um, so what we wanted to do was also augment that with some really nice annuity revenue, right. i.e. SaaS software yeah. revenue streams recurring. Um, and um, just by chance, that that worked very well strategically because we also were uh, bereft of content. Uh, we, were, uh, we were very strong content and bereft of software capability. Um, and so we went on a, a major shopping spree, mostly in America from 2016 onwards and started to buy uh, learning related software companies. And that has served us incredibly well to the point where now 80% of our revenue and our revenue is circa 180 to 190 million pounds now. Uh, it was 8 million pounds when we started. So that gives you a, a, a sense of the, of the journey in the last seven years. And we've gone from 100 employees to 1,100 employees in that time, and from one and a half million pounds of of EBIT to about 50 million pounds of EBIT. So um, that's been quite a journey. And um, uh, we now have 80% of our our revenue that that comes from recurring software revenue. So the visibility is, is very strong. Um, so the business looks completely different than, yeah. frankly, I even imagined it. I thought it would always be perhaps services biased. Right. And it's just interesting how you adapt to the journey based, based, based on what your customer's looking for and what your investor's looking for. 
And so you've, you, I know you've got now you've got these 16 countries or 16 acquisitions and still a whole lot of federated sisterly, brotherly businesses uh, yep. under the same umbrella. What's been your thinking about um, keeping them as separate, separately managed entities or separate business units versus a constant them? question um, from uh, from investors in particular? It's, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? You can you can go one way. You can either say we're going to have the big crunch it together model, everything's going to to be in one in one bucket in an entity. Or, or you go the route that we've gone. Um, we've taken the view that what we won't allow is for companies that do similar things to sit as separate entities. So we do do quite a lot of merging and crunching together. And right. that's, for instance, why I say to you that we've made 16 acquisitions plus the reversed business. Mm-hmm. So 17 businesses, but I only have 10 managing directors and, and 10 operating units, if you like. So that gives you a sense yeah. of the consolidation yeah. we've done within ourselves. Um, but we've got very distinctly different capabilities in these businesses. And whilst they work together collaboratively, it makes total sense to have them on, on, on separate, um, mm. as separate operating units. I'd also add one other thing. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know whether I'm right on this. You, you can only live from your own perception and what you've learned over time. But what I really like is the resilience of the portfolio effect. I'm very proud to say to you that in seven years, we have never missed a profit forecast uh, in our public company life. Mm. And, I, and that stands us in good stead. I think it really helps our, our, our rating and so on. Um, and I can tell you for sure that a number of my operating businesses have missed their budget. You know, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Life happens like that. But because of the portfolio and the strength and resilience that you get because of the diversity of the portfolio, yeah. we never miss an overall group number. Um, and I don't want to get to this one homogenized PL where all of a sudden you get to this rather blur- these blurred lines of accountability. At the moment, I've got 10 management teams led by a managing director in each case, and they all care passionately and they all have very aligned incentives towards delivering their revenue growth and their, mm-hmm. their profit targets for their individual business. And they rely on myself and my six executive team colleagues to um, bring the whole uh, group together and deliver it from a group perspective. So we're, we're very much codependent on each other for performance. Um, and that, that works well. In our, mm. in our yeah, I think they, um, the resilience you called it, for me, it's uh, the, the word that came to mind um, is anti-fragile. I don't know whether you've read that. Not heard, yeah. <laughs> no, okay. Right. So, um, so anti-fragile is basically, you know, if you take something and you apply a shock to something or stress to something, you know, something that's fragile will break. Sure. Right? And we don't have a word for the opposite of that. We think it's robust. Well, robust things just don't change, right? Um, but what about the things which get stronger when you submit them to stresses? That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so, for example, the human body, you know, like if you go to the gym, it's, you know, you, you put stress on it, right? It doesn't break. It gets stronger. I mean, obviously, at a certain limit, right? Not but you, <laughs> um, Depends on who you're in the gym with. Well, yes, yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, but, you know, economies, right? They're like that as well. Actually, you know, when they get stresses, yeah, it can be hard for individual firms or whatever, but generally things become stronger um, or in nature, you know, um, sure you know, you have a forest fire or whatever, and actually it comes back more dense afterwards. So, so this idea of anti-fragile, I think it might apply to your business because, um, you know, you've got this resilience um, that if one business doesn't work, another one is, if there's a trend, right? Perhaps one business will suffer from that trend, but three other businesses will benefit from that trend. Exactly. Uh, and and it, that, that diversification of um, that exposure, if you like, to risk, 
uh, has happened actually more by accident than design because we 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 have criteria about how we want to buy a business and it's very much customer focused and whether we believe it's it's part of the overall learning ecosystem that we see for the future um but i think by default that causes us to be focused in different areas across the portfolio uh, and therefore have this resilience built in i just mentioned one other point to you we all went through the most unbelievable unexpected stress test in march april of last year yeah um and I'm very proud of, of, of what our colleagues achieved because, you know, we came through that and delivered extraordinarily similar. I mean, within a, a couple of percentage points, revenue and profit numbers in 2020 compared to 2019, mm. even though we suffered a 24% decline in the revenue in our content division, because understandably customers who, who went through the, the shock in the biggest way, airlines, um, yeah. hospitality, retail, et cetera, did switch off a lot of work with us. They, they canceled mm. their projects for correct reasons. Um, we still you know survived and replaced that revenue so um, an amazing example, example of the resilience yeah. it's a great example and it actually goes against the whole concept of lean in, in some sense right in the sense of uh, uh, you know if the nuclear war happens, you know, then you want to be the guy who's got a whole bunch of food and supplies in the bunker, right? You don't want to be the person who's ordering it all on the internet, you know, in just in time. Sure. <laughs> in other words, actually having some redundancy and some uh, overlap and these kind of things in a, in a system actually makes it more resilient uh, and able it, to cope with change. It does. I, I think one always needs to have an incredible balance there. And I would say that we lean towards, pardon the pun, we, we lean towards a leaner balance. Um, mm. So, you know, I'm very proud of the circa 30%-ish EBIT margins that the business makes mm. year over year. Uh, and that doesn't suggest yeah. a business that's got yeah. a lot of, you know, yeah. slack built into yeah. the system. Um, yeah. I, I agree. I'm, I'm saying it because I'm pushing, you know, because often, we, you know, all our tendencies is to always relentlessly optimize, right? <laughs> and mine sure. included. And so it's just interesting to kind of push it back and think about, I, I think know, it's single points for failure. I, I, do you know what? I absolutely think it's, I, I can focus too much on that at times. And what's been really interesting is, is as we've grown, you know, um, I've, I've, of course, to, to a certain extent early on, reluctantly relinquished con control of certain things. I think I was a bit of a control freak and I've been forced to learn not to be because you have to delegate and you have to trust mm. colleagues. And I'm very lucky to have a, an incredible team of people around me and I trust them completely. Uh, but that didn't happen naturally to me. And I think, when you get that melding of many people's different perspectives and opinions, you actually end up with more resilience because of that, because it, it isn't just that single view that I, that I, I might take. So yeah. I've learned a lot from that. These conversations are all about scaling yourself to scale your business. And one of the biggest barriers that stops us from doing that is getting stuck in operations and not spending time on the most valuable strategic work. So I do recommend that you take our free executive productivity assessment. It's just 10 quick questions to find out exactly where you are on the journey to executive time management mastery. You'll then discover how you can free yourself up for more strategic activity. To take the assessment, head to xquadrant.com slash go slash productivity assessment with a hyphen between those two last words. Now, back to the conversation. Yeah, I think that's the whole thing around the whole diversity um, uh, drive, really. And it took me a while to uh, totally get it, but then it was the aha in the complex 
in a complex world where there are almost no right answers it's you know it's it, everything's changing and and it's hard to get a handle on things you know we only see our we only see it with our lens right and therefore we need other people to have their lens to give us that you know um 80s cinema effect of the 3d gl- glasses right with different colored lenses giving us different takes on the same on the agree view. So looking at, at, um, at this, you know, fantastic growth from, you know, eight to 190 million, uh, for example, what do you think were a couple of things that you did really well in the business that, uh, that, that supported that success and helped you scale? With that question, spotting entrepreneurs and building relationships with them early so that we could um, encourage them to become part of the group and, and help to nurture their business. And, and we, and we started to build a, a reasonably good formula for this. I and mean, obviously every deal is individual, mm. but um, they, they have the same sort of components and themes. Uh, and basically what we do there is we, we talk about liberating that entrepreneur. We normally find them at a stage where they've created their business and they're going to that sort of next scale up step. And it's nervous for them, of course. And, and they're looking for external assistance or investment. Um, And rather than come in with sort of the growth equity, the private equity style perspective, we come in and say, look, you know, we've got this ecosystem of businesses around us. We've got this central services capability where we're going to take all the, dare I say it, more mundane functions of running your business from financial to HR to to legal, et cetera. And and we're going to do those things for you alongside you. And we will literally liberate you to focus on doing that top line revenue growth, which you've clearly done so well over the last few years in developing Mm. your business. Um, and, and that really appeals and resonates with certain types of entrepreneur. And what I would say to you is I am so thrilled by the amount of success we've had in paying out our earn out payments to our entrepreneurs who sold to us, where they're entirely predicated on revenue growth. They're very simple. They're very objective. No one can argue or uh, get into any concerns about them. And we love paying out a maximum earnout over three years because that means the business has grown successfully in our hands and the entrepreneur feels great. We feel great and value is created for all parties. So um, that's, that's, that's mm-hmm. been a real, and we've learned from everything one we've done, and of the of the 16 deals we've done, I'd argue something like you, you categorize 11, 12 of those in, in those in that very specific vein. Right. We've done a couple of deals that have been different. Um, and this these were calculated scale ups where we said to ourselves, OK, this is a mature software company. This is absolutely not entrepreneurial gang gang mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's far from it. In fact, one of the businesses we bought wasn't just flatlining. It was even receding slightly. Um, but it was $100 million of revenue. We had a real respect for the capabilities in the business. It wasn't very profitable, um, but we saw, we saw a route to great profitability. It had a fantastic longstanding customer base and some, some really capable software, fun, fantastic complex functionality, but not the most elegant of user interfaces and that sort of right. thing. So it needs some juju and modern modernization. And we felt that these were problems we could overcome. We bought these businesses, these couple of businesses on very, very attractive economic terms. So our entry price was good. And we have both transformed the product and the um, profitability. And therefore, of course, the staff have very much come with us on that journey. Um, and so they, they, they were a rather different style of acquisition. Um, but goodness me, they, they, they changed the whole um, tenor of the group uh, on both mm-hmm. of those occasions in 17 and 18 when we did those deals. And what I, what I found interesting about it is that it's a real dichotomy between the two models. I mean, one is a, one is a I'm, we're just going to support you entrepreneur to carry on leading your business and grow like crazy. Um, 
And one is that we're going to come in and, and, and really um, transform and potentially um, restructure your, the business and change the management team. So they are a very different methodology. But it's interesting how, how much commonality there is at, at, the, at the back because the care for a customer, the care for the product being right uh, and, and fitting the customer's needs, all of those sorts of things, of course, are commonplace to each of those businesses. Mm. Yeah, so really that... that your machine that you built to spot the right entrepreneurs, for example, and help them see the light. <laughs> Perhaps that's hard, hard yards. I mean, that's just research, yeah. you know, reaching out, evangelizing, yeah. um, uh, you know, kissing a lot of frogs. <laughs> you know, it, it, it really mm-hmm. is just, just about doing those yards. And we don't, I'm sad actually, that based on time and scale and all the rest of it, one of the great things is we're approached by anybody selling any business in our industry, we are known as the leading consolidator. So we very rarely miss out on an acquisition opportunity. Um, But that, to a certain extent, is sad because it makes you a bit lazy about the fact that we used to go and reach out early on to try Mm. and find these these early entrepreneurial businesses. We do a bit of that now, but not as much as we used to. Mm. Yeah, and um, when you talked about the growth uh, incentives, um, so do you, what happens to profitability in that? Was, would you just assume that profitability is going to remain the same or do you have a separate team who kind of manages that and takes that off the entrepreneur's hands? Uh, we don't take it off the entrepreneur's hands, but, you know, and, and they're, they're, they're very much encouraged to, to work autonomously in terms of the way they run their business. But it's within a, a, a set of guide rails for the budget. Mm, right. And one of the things that we've developed is a document that we enter into before we make the acquisition, before the legals are signed, called a memorandum of understanding, which talks about all of this in, in really deep mm. detail. So you don't get into that awful situation six months in where someone says, oh, it's not what I expected it to be. We're very clear about the expectations that we set at the beginning. But we're also clear about the fact that whilst profitability is really important, we're not um, totally margin focused where growth is really, really possible. So I've got one business at the moment called Breezy that I bought at three and a half million dollars. Um, it'll do probably, um, not that this is a forecast, but I would estimate it would do something like 10 or $11 million of revenue this year. That's, that's two and a half years into their journey with us. Um, so it's growing like topsy. And do I care about it making a 30 or 35% EBIT margin yet? Hell no, it doesn't matter because we know where it's going. We know its trajectory. And um, we're actually in a fortunate position with that business whereby there's a direct correlation between investment in marketing spend and, and a return on that investment in terms of customers. So um, whilst we're in that lovely place, we will continue to invest as heavily as we can. Sure. So margin is, is less of an issue to us in those circumstances. That's another interesting aspect of the resilience of the group. We have a yeah. real margin mix across the 10 operating units. Yeah, and really interesting. And, and, and what's, um, what things have been painful in that growth? I mean, presumably all these, none of these journeys are, are, are all roses, right? There's been a I thought we were only on for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, uh, well, I, I was, in preparation for this, I was just trying to think to, to pull, call out a couple of sort of lessons learned, as it were, the, the, the painful things. Um, when we did our first acquisition, so we were combining Epic with a business called Line, um, who did very similar things to us. Um, the, the founder of Line is our chief strategy officer today, a chap called Beersley, wonderful colleague of mine. Um, and he and I had really thought about how we'd bring two competitive businesses together to merge them. And you know what? As much as we talked about and as much as we cared, we still got it wrong. Um, and we went round the mill a couple of times in terms of getting that merger right. And I would argue from the acquisition in April 14, it probably wasn't until until we left 2015, that business as a business mm. now called Leo was operating as a cohesive one, one company unit. So that took, that took a lot of time and loads of lessons learned. 
And, um, so what, and so what, if you just go into that, you know, what, what do you think slowed we, it we down? Knew, we knew that culture was an important thing. We res- respected it. We recognised it. We talked openly about it. We thought we'd dealt with it because of that. And we hadn't. You know, you, you get caught out by things. Um, and uh, whilst we set a vision, we, we, we just didn't really understand all of the different passions and factions that, that would care about their individual visions and not want to give those things up. And until you could prove that the new joined up vision was better, was, was a, a great amalgamation of the best things of the, the two prior visions. Mm-hmm. And that took a lot longer to prove than we realized. I think that would be my, in a nutshell, what happened. I also learned quite a bit about, we wanted to, we've always believed in, uh, we're, we're absolute utter meritocracy. I much prefer to hire senior people from within than from outside. And we have at times made the mistake of perhaps pushing people too far, too fast. Um, and those have been some lessons learned as well, mm. uh, particularly around that time. These days, we, we're fortunate mm. enough to have such a, a, a depth and pool of talent that, that that doesn't happen in the same way. The only other one I would mention to you is that I was a bit lax on my um, people-related diligence in a, an acquisition in 2015, where I I believed too much on face value from the vendors um, and should have just seen the warning signs. And it's the only management team that we've lost in its entirety uh, since we made an, a, an acquisition. Um, so we're very proud of that record. But that one, I, I learned a number of lessons from in terms of the way I would approach diligence thereafter. Yeah. So just to, uh, thank you for sharing some of those because you know it, it's. Really valuable lessons in some of that. So, if you were doing that kind of merger again, go back to the Epic Line merger. You know, what what kind of conversations might you have had, or how, what might you have done? Like, how would you have addressed that culture issue practically? What what would you what would you do now? What would your playbook be? And and frankly, we have done it many times since. So, okay. um, you know, the, the lessons learned are held in a great long, t- lengthy tome mm. uh, that we refer to. Um, consulting um, uh, early with earlier with staff. Uh, making them really feel that you're listening and that they have a genuine input into it to mm. set the parameters of what's got to be achieved. So the end goal is there. How, do, how are you going to help us get there? And mm. so just, just it's, you, you, you have to engage much more than you think you do because mm. what I realized is that staff only probably hear 50% of what I believe I've said, do you know what I mean? Yeah, or any of us have said. So the, the engagement point is, is crucial. Um, yeah. And I think in particular, when people start to feel nervous about change, and of course, some people are really mm. anti-change, and we're all different about that, um, the, the engagement in that regard is, is, is even more important. But, mm. um, and speed. I, the other thing we've learned is that show real alacrity and communicate how you're going to integrate these businesses quickly. Um, even if you get some of those decisions wrong, it is better to do it fast and with thorough research and thorough engagement, but to do it speedily than, than have a long, slow grinding process. You get high staff attrition um, and people get very, very bored by the tedious nature of that. Mm. So I think speed is really important. Yeah. Right? Not doing, it's not, you don't want stupid in speed, you want, you want well thought through in speed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what about the people-related diligence that you mentioned? Um, I thought that was quite an interesting comment as you go in to look at a management team. So, you know, can I ask, like, what questions weren't you asking that you would ask now? Or, you know, just what, what comes to mind? That, I mean, you might not want to be super specific, but what... I, I, don't, mean, I, I don't want to be too specific, but um, uh, a, a warning sign for me that I chose to ignore was the general age of the team um, and the fact that their background was in... Uh, mostly face-to-face type delivery of training um, and we were very much um, 
believing together that we would take some of that that would stay forever in that in that modality but we would also go on a journey to make things more digital together and that was the premise for buying the business in the first place everyone said the right things said they were bought into that but actually when when the rubber hit the road um we found that, that there was not the alignment that we thought and and, yeah. and also we we hadn't realized that the management team wasn't wasn't really this wasn't a um let's go on the next leg of our journey this was let's let's find the exit lane off right let's find the exit right so, yeah yeah so yeah it and how can you spot this all the time no would i and also what i don't want to do is become a uh a, a gnarly old cynic and, and therefore not buy businesses because you 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 don't yeah there's always a reason not to buy in, yeah. in the vendor's reasons for for joining you you can always get cynical about that stuff or what does he know about his business or he or she know that i don't um and so you've got to be careful to keep a balance with these things but yeah uh, learn to have more of a balance than i did in, at that time yeah perfect well as we look forward um, I love to ask the question about what's the next level, right? Because no matter how much we've achieved and whatever we, you know, we, we've done, there's always a next level. And I suppose first question would be about the business and second one probably about you, uh, you Jonathan. So on the business level, like where do you want to go from here? Look, we've, we've merely scratched the surface of an incredible industry that has been actually reasonably well served i'm almost feel guilty to say by the by the pandemic um you know there, there is definitely a, a a recognition and a need for more uh, digital enablement of talent development in in large corporates and government and and, and we're just brilliantly positioned as as are our competitors to do that um it still remains a heavily fragmented industry we've got unbelievable financing firepower now you know we, we can start to genuinely think about acquisitions in the multi-hundreds of millions of dollars i say dollars because most of our targets are yeah. uh, in america um and um and so yeah we we, we don't really see an end to that i couldn't give you a number or a target um what i'd say to you is it's, it's about um the breadth and the thoroughness of the capability that we can offer to our customers. So there's still some gaps. Um, there's still without question a, 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 um, a lack of the, 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 the strategic relationships that we would like with large corporates. We have some, but not as many as we wish. We want to broaden our customer base dramatically. Um, and I, I think there's some very interesting times to come in our industry over the coming years. So who knows, but mm. it, I, what I will say is that we are unstinted in our ambition levels and we're, we're, we're pretty audacious you know we, we've we've done uh, the team's done an incredible job in the last seven years to get to where we've got to could we do could we take go from here to doubling in another three years would be a, a really interesting question that we would ask ourselves and that's certainly something that we're mm. considering yeah i love that's kind of um that that what if right the possibilities exactly. because when you start thinking that way then your your thought process just evolve right you have to think on a different level exactly. And, and you know, I've also got some really interesting younger leaders coming through alongside me who are performing incredibly well at, at this at this senior level. Who have who are who they begin to inject their own ambition into the whole story, and so it's it's almost like I've got ambition uh, pushing up from behind me as well. I mean, we're we're a flat collegiate team, but you know what I mean. It's just like the the mm. the, the point of a spear. Everyone is pushing forward in the same direction. It it it, it really does inspire you to. To, to, to think bigger and move on, um, which is really exciting. Yeah, I mean, so, and so often it's just the quality of our thinking. Um, yeah, occasionally when, when people uh, ask me, or just professionally, they'll, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, I don't think I need, um, yeah, my, you know, like 
my team are doing well or somebody you know, I'm doing fine. I don't need coaching, you know, which is like, I agree. I don't need, if, if you really need a coach, you probably, you, you probably it's probably too late, right? It's, um, we are always but, learning, Richard. But, but it's always a question for me of like, well, what is the, what's our next level, right? Where sure. can we, where do we go from here? How do we get past our own thinking and find another place to stand, right? Another place to look. And I think that's where it's fun. So I'd love to hear that kind of sense of, yeah, well, why don't we double in three years, right? Yeah, because when you start to think about that, then solutions come to mind right you can start to solve those problems and so how would thinking about on that vein Jonathan how how um how might you need to change as well with with this growth of the business because I guess running a portfolio business when it's got five or ten P&Ls in it might be different from a couple of years down the road where you might have double the number or or more it's an interesting question I mean I'm, I'm I've learned to be much more self-aware of, of both my own limitations and um, the, the, the problems that are in front of me. Um, I think speed and scale are mm. fantastic attributes of this because the business, as it expands, forces you. You either become a constraining aspect to it, that would be terrible, mm. or, you, or you, you roll with it and, um, and you learn how to deal with those situations. So, you know, I've never been a public company chief executive before. I've learned an immense amount over the first couple of years and I'm still learning today. Um, uh, the management team, the executive team particularly, has expanded dramatically. I see eventually not having 10 direct reports, but, but grouping, divisionalizing those into, into the various different um, aspects and attributes of what we do, and then working with divisional leaders. Um, so there, there are a number of things that will change over, over the coming years. Um, but- Interesting you talk about 10 reports, you're right, because I always... I always um... I would like to say to people, you know, Jesus had 12, right? So, you know, if, <laughs> so like, as, you, as you start to get near that number, you should really be thinking whether you might want to have a, a slightly smaller team. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not going to make any comparisons there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, actually, and what I often find myself working with, with leadership teams is, yeah, it's like, you know, you when you have a team which is uh, six to eight, right, you know, the the kind of the... Right. Basically, there's no social loafing, as it's called, right? I mean, everyone's totally, you know, you have to pull your part, you have to pull your yeah. weight around the table. And once it gets into 10 plus, um, you just, the energy in the room is not quite the same. So I've got 10 business unit leaders, um, mm-hmm. but then I ha- we have a, an exec team, which is very flat. There's no hierarchy at all of seven of us. Uh, right. and, we, and we are responsible for, for a, a function each, right. or more than one function each. But we also work very collegiately to run the entire group. And uh, that's a... That's a fabulous high-performing team. That's beautiful. Fantastic. Well, that's pretty a great place to, um, to, to leave it, Jonathan. Uh, if people want to find out more about um, the business or its sub-businesses, uh, how should they do that? Or even just get in contact with you? What, what's the best way? Sure. They're always welcome to get in contact with me. Um, and uh, my, uh, my details are on, um, uh, on any RNS that we release about the business, um, but also the website ltgplc.com. Um, we'll give them plenty of, of, of information about the company. Uh, always happy to have a conversation with anyone yeah perfect so especially if there's anyone listening who's uh, an entrepreneur of a fast grow- growing learning <laughs> company then uh, you found yeah, very your, welcome your future. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> perfect well thank you jonathan it's been a treat thanks so much and uh, look forward to seeing how um your portfolio continues to evolve and it sounds like you've got a very exciting future so thank you for spending a few minutes pleasure richard thanks for the interest in lcg and what we've done thank you very much thank you bye-bye I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Now let's talk about you. When you're in top leadership, when you're in the biggest role of your career, 
Who supports you at a deep level as you lead others? Who helps you multiply your impact and get to the next level? If you're ready to learn more about our content, our coaching, and our community, then visit us at xquadrant.com.